Uh, how's everybody doing? <laughs> Love the enthusiasm. That's wonderful. Um, uh, usually, when you uh, start a sermon, you kind of like try to think of a nice, lighthearted way uh, to intro what you're talking about. But we're just going to jump in. And uh, I want to make the, uh, the, the statement that we tend to, or it's a temptation to, use Jesus as kind of our own personal mascot for whatever particular cause. So you can see this in a variety of areas, but for example, with like, uh, we're seeing a lot of protests and counter-protests. If you were to go up to any of these groups of people and, uh, and ask them, do, they, do you think Jesus is on their side? They would say, yes, of course, he's on our side. And so whether it's the protests or the counter-protests, they would highlight the different areas in the Gospels where it felt like Jesus was doing something that they would do or that was, he, was, he, was, he, he was speaking in a way that would support what they were thinking. And uh, it, it's this real temptation to have an ideology or to have a point or have a goal and then to see how we can make Jesus kind of support that. Because if you have Jesus on your side, that's good. The problem is, is we're, we don't want Jesus on our side. We want to be with him, not force him to be with us, because we're going to misrepresent who he is and what he does and what he taught if we're trying to make him support our own causes and our own ideology. We've been talking in this um, series that Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he called his 11 to this mountain. He, he brought them all to this mountain. They had to hike 100 miles, and he brought them to the top of this mountain, and he says, all right, guys. All authority has been given to me. But when we try to force Jesus to be on our side, we are saying that we are the authority and that we need Jesus to support our causes. And that's not the way it works. We, uh, we serve Jesus the King. We serve Jesus the King, and we've got to find out what he cares about, and we need to care about those things as well. So last week, we talked about how we don't have a real great relationship with authority and power. We're not real awesome with that. We don't like people telling us what to do. Um, we're not sure where to put this idea of authority and power in our relationship with, with Jesus. Like, what do we do with that? Where do we fit that idea of Jesus being king in our faith? Last week, we followed the dotted line of Scripture, and we, we, we told you that Jesus isn't on some power trip. He exercised authority by being a servant. But this, uh, that dotted line of scripture leads us to the cross. It's the culmination of this, this theme or this, this story in scripture where Jesus says, hey, all authority has been given to me. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. So how should my life reflect that? How should my life reflect the fact that Jesus is the authority? Let's do a movie flashback. You know, when you're watching a movie and at the beginning they set up this scene and something exciting happens, but you're not, you're a little confused, you don't know what's going on, and then there will be this edit, and then it'll say something like, one month earlier, and then you're like, okay, now I'm going to get the background to the story. Let's do that, because Jesus is on the mountain with his 11, but if you rewind about a month earlier, he's on, I believe, the same mountain with the twelve. And he's talking with them about this whole idea, but it's pre-cross. It's before all the events of the final week took place. And so they're still not quite sure what's going on. But this is, he's going to talk about something that's so key to understanding who Jesus is as the Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16. We're staying in the book of Matthew. I don't know if you have noticed, but these different authors sometimes have different concepts that they're utilizing. So for example, you kids growing up, 
uh, you kind of knew your parents when they would say, like your mom, when she would say no, you know, can I have a sleepover with my friends, and your mom would say no, you knew that meant no. But when your dad said no, you knew that meant I need to ask a few more times in a couple different ways. I can eventually get to the yes because I know the language my parents speak. And so it's the same way in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, actually, with my dad, I just asked to ask him when, I have to ask him when he's distracted, and he'll just like, yeah, nod or whatever. All right, dad said I could. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each, each author has these different key words and concepts that they're trying to use. And so we kind of lose a lot of importance when we just throw all those uh, gospels in a blender and just make it into like one story because they're each writing the same um, narrative, but with different, different points. And so we're trying to stay in the book of Matthew as much as possible in this series. We'll be doing that this week and next week, and we did it last week as well. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, really the verse to, end of verse uh, 15. He's got his guys, they're up on the mountain, I think the same mountain, nice literary balance. And uh, he says, so who do you say I am? You're familiar with this passage of scripture. Who do you, you 12, who do you say I am? Peter, evidently speaking for the rest of the guys, and uh, what well, says Simon Peter in the text, Simon Peter Simon is his name. Peter's the nickname Jesus gave him. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, some of your translations will have the word Christ in there, and you guys know that the word Christ and the word Messiah, they're the same word in different languages. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. We don't speak those languages, but these guys often spoke both, and sometimes they use the concepts interchangeably. It's not Mr. Christ. His name is in Jesus Christ, last name. You know, you don't look it up by the sea. But the word Messiah just means future king. That's all it means. And it's based on the ceremony that they would use to install uh, a king. And so this is a ceremony that David went through when he was just a kid because someday he was going to be king. And Jesus was the coming king. And so Peter starts to get it. You can start to see the light bulb goes off in his mind. Now, we had this huge advantage of 2,000 years where we've been singing Jesus loves me ever since we were little kids. So we kind of have this clearer identity, although I would argue not always very accurate, but a clearer identity of who Jesus is. But for these disciples, they were just beginning to figure out this was huge. This was a huge turning point in history, and it was beginning to dawn on them what was happening. And Peter says, I think you're the future king. I think that's, that's what this is all about. That's what all this has been leading to. He's, he, I think you're the guy that Moses and David and the prophets said was coming. You imagine how that would have felt? Like you would have felt like you were on the verge of something historic, like, yes. This is the moment that we have been waiting for. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's Simon and his dad. That's a very formal way of addressing him. He says, For this, Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. It's kind of like when you get called on in class and you haven't been really paying attention. The teacher asks you something and you're not sure of the answer and you just guess and you get it right. You feel so clever. And I feel like Simon Peter must have felt like, oh, I nailed it. I'm smart. I got this. Now, and, and Jesus says, yeah, good job. God dropped that little nugget into your brain. Nice. Now, Jesus goes on to talk in the next two verses about uh, verse 18 and 19. He talks about what the church is. And we talked about this in a series a few years ago. We explored those two passages or those two verses of Scripture. Uh, the whole section about the gate of Hades, gates of Hades will not prevail, all that. It's very, very good stuff, but we're not going to dig in that today. So I want you to jump down to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 20. Matthew 16 and verse 20. 
And Jesus then ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You read that, and this happens a number of times in Scripture. You read that, and you're like, wait, hold on a second. Like, why would you, why in the world would you tell people not to bring up the fact that you are the future king? Like, people are starting to get it. It's like us today. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus. We're supposed to tell people that he's the Messiah. Why in the world would Jesus tell people that, hey, you got to keep this a secret. This isn't, you know, keep this on the down low. Sorry, I've got wind and notes, and this is going to be interesting here. I want you to think about this. There's 12 guys 12 scruffy looking guys who knows how often they take a shower and they're living out in the wilderness they're camping outside they're going up and down the countryside and just you know people are like what are what are these guys doing well i don't know they're just out there being weirdos and the one guy the one guy named jesus keeps saying he keeps insinuating that he's the the next king i mean imagine what this would look like even today if there is some like militia that rents or, or buys a campground out in Idaho somewhere and practices for the apocalypse, that makes the FBI kind of nervous. You imagine you got 12 guys who are like, yeah, we think we got the future king here. You're out in the wilderness doing what? Of course it's going to make the authorities nervous. Now, Jesus can do what he wants. He's powerful, but he's like, hey, we've got other things to focus on, so let's keep this news that I'm the future king between you and me right now. Sounds like one of those m- militant uh, groups, you know, the kind of thing that gets your phone tapped and white vans parked on your street. Remember, they have, they have no First Amendment right to free speech or to peacefully gather. So, you know, if they come along and say, hey, we think this guy's the next emperor, emperor Rome is just going to, like, bring the hammer down on these guys. So Jesus is like, let's just keep this on the down low. We'll save it for a nice surprise uh, here in about a month, and it will work out pretty well for us. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. I've never been in a locker room at halftime at a football game. I've never had a coach give me an inspirational speech like, you know, in Miracle on Ice in in 1980. I've never had that moment where you were like kind of against the ropes and you had to have some inspirational figure come and really like build you up. I've never experienced that moment. But I would imagine if you were in a uh, locker room at halftime at a football game, say maybe the score's tied, you know, hey, we're going to the second half, guys, and you know what, here's what the game plan is. We're all going to go as a team. We're going to go out there, and we're just going to kind of, you know, give away the game. The players in that locker room would be like, what? What are you talking about? That's not how any of this works. You got to give us an inspirational speech about leaving it all on the field, 110%, and this is our moment of glory. We've been working all season for this. You don't tell us that we're just going to go out in the field and give up. And when Jesus says, hey, we're all going to go to Jerusalem, I'm actually going to be beaten up by the religious leaders and by Rome, and you know, I'm going to have to suffer many things, and I'm going to have to die. Well, Peter, of course, is thinking, Jesus, that's not how a, a, a coup works. You're the king. Here's what we do. What we do is we go out and we recruit a bunch of guys and we take them out of the wilderness and we start training them and we arm them with like knives and pitchforks and whatever else we can get our hands on. And then late at night, we come up with a strategy for a sneak attack on Jerusalem and we take out the Roman garrison there. That's what you do. What are you talking about giving up and suffering and dying? That's just, that's crazy talk. And so Peter literally says to Jesus, Peter rebukes him and he says, never, Lord, never, 
will I let this happen to you? And from Peter's point of view, that makes total sense. Of course not. Of course you don't walk into Jerusalem and just say, here I am, guys. Do what you will. You, as the future king, walk into Jerusalem and you overthrow the Romans. You overthrow the corrupt religious elite. You come in with violence and you dominate your enemies. That's what a king does. No wonder Peter says that. I mean, I totally get it. I totally, I I relate that to that completely, knowing what Peter knows. And then verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter And I think he's getting Peter's attention. I love that body language. Jesus turned to Peter. And I almost imagine he did like, Peter, you need to look me right in the eyes right now. It doesn't say that, but I imagine. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, poor Peter. Like two verses ago, he was like, good job, Peter. You nailed my identity. You got it figured out. Awesome. And then two verses later, he's like, get behind me, Satan. I mean, how? It's the same exact language that Jesus used, same exact phrase that Jesus used in the wilderness with uh, talking to Satan. I mean, this can't have felt good. It felt like whiplash, I imagine, this roller coaster ride. One moment Jesus is praising you for totally getting it, the next he's calling you Satan. I mean, it's so disorienting. Can you imagine being in that moment? Now, again, we have this advantage of thousands of years of, uh, of church history where we can look back and we're like, why didn't Peter get it? Why didn't he get it? I mean, he, I, it was amazing. He got as far as he did. We wouldn't have gotten that far. But we look at this moment and we're like, wow, this is, I mean, Peter, you should have just understand that Jesus is supposed to go to the cross. He's supposed to die and he's suffering. He's going to raise again in three days and celebrate Easter. People are going to do it for thousands of years. It's going to be awesome. Of course they don't get it. Of course they don't get it. Looking at it from the front end. I, wanna, I think this is a valuable point to make, something that we probably don't talk about very often. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should regularly expect to be disoriented in our relationship with Jesus. We should expect that. We should expect to have Jesus come along and say, hey, the way that you thought things should go is not the way that I think they should go. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We should expect not to get it sometimes and to be scratching our heads. The, 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 uh, the experience of discipleship should be disorientation. It should. It's a necessary part. If you're never a little confused about God, what God is doing or about Jesus, then it means that you're not really thinking about what he's doing or that you have decided that you're going to use him for your own purposes and you're only going to understand Jesus in a way that supports your ideology, not in a way that actually treats him as all authority. The experience of discipleship is going to be occasionally disorienting. My grandfather was a uh, true Renaissance man. He, he, did, he did everything. Like, I, I'll talk to my mom and aunt sometimes, and, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, he, uh, he painted he, uh, he made parts for the space shuttle. I mean, he just, like everything you can imagine, he had his hand in, kind of a jack-of-all-trades type. And one of the things he did was he had his pilot's license, and he flew a little Cessna. And um, one, I didn't know about this until years later, uh, but one evening, he and my grandmother were in the airplane, and they were landing, and it was evening, and they were landing into the setting sun, and he got a little disoriented with the light, the sun, and he thought he was level, but he was actually at an angle when he landed, so his wing hit, hit the ground first, and that didn't go well. Now, they walked away. They were fine, a couple scratches, but didn't really get injured, but the plane was kind of messed up, 
Um, because the problem isn't necessarily that your wings aren't level. The problem is when you think that they're level. The problem isn't necessarily that we are ever wrong in our walk with Christ. The problem is when we are confident that we are not wrong. And the thing about humanity is that we are so wrong so often with such confidence. I mean, it happens all the time. Now, we hate to admit it. We hate to admit it. But all the time, we're coming in for a landing, and we think, I got this, I got this, I got this. And we're really, our wings are at a tilt. We're going to drive the plane right into the ground. My uh, daughter, Taya, works at a local restaurant where she, she occasionally hosts And so people will walk in on a Friday night. It's a little busy. She had this experience recently where a middle-aged man walked in, and she told him, hey, the wait is about 90 minutes. Okay, well, if I hear that, I'm eating McDonald's for dinner. I'm not waiting 90 minutes. But he said, okay, put my name down. And she puts his name down, puts his number down, puts the time that they arrived, and puts how long she told them that the wait was going to be. 90 minutes. Well, about, I don't know, 20 minutes later, he comes storming in, and he said, you told us it was going to be 45 minutes, and we've been waiting here 90 minutes. And she's like, excuse me, sir, actually, here's what I told you. It's written here, and, you know, here's what why I said it was going to be this. I just, Let me speak to your, sir, if you look, I, I told, it's all written down right here, but I can understand that you're a little disoriented. Sometimes that happens to people of your age. She, she didn't say that. She didn't say that part, but if you've ever worked in customer service, you know that you have been very tempted to say those types of things to people because he is 100% wrong. He is 1,000% wrong, and he is extremely confident in his wrongness. Let me speak to your manager. Sure, have at it because you're wrong. It should not surprise us that as we reshape our lives around King Jesus that there are going to be times where we're disoriented where we're not sure about, like, that doesn't, I'm not sure. I think, I thought this, I, I, I thought this was supposed to be this way. Our discipleship will be filled with moments of disorientation because our entire lives, your entire life, we have been raised in a world where we were taught that up was down and left was right, and we come to this relationship with Jesus, and he's trying to reshape us, and of course, it's going to feel like driving on the wrong side of the road. It's going to feel strange. It's going to be a little disorienting, and when we're not up for that challenge, then we're just going to use Jesus, and we're going to reshape Jesus into our own image rather than allowing him to reshape us. Every Disney movie, I think, I think there's a, some sort of contractual obligation to, to teach in a Disney movie. Just follow your heart. That's how you achieve joy and satisfaction in a Disney movie or a Lifetime or a Hallmark movie, right? Just follow your heart. Well, you know what? When someone does something mean to me, you know what my heart wants? My heart wants to do something mean back to them. If I follow my heart, I'm going to nurse a grudge or I'm going to retaliate, or I'm going to try to hurt someone else because I'm feeling so hurt by them if I follow by heart. That's our human orientation. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in in mind the things of God, but merely human things. That's all you're thinking. You're thinking about this this, uh, uh, violent governmental coup That's not what I'm about at all. You don't understand it at all. Peter's got to be like, what? What are you talking about? 
To trust Jesus' authority is to distrust our own. To trust Jesus' authority is to distrust our own. Outside of Christ, our natural reaction is rarely in keeping with God's expectations. Just follow your heart. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to crash land that plane of your life if you just follow your heart because you think everything's level and you're not. Reorienting ourselves around King Jesus means feeling disoriented as we unlearn human things. And there's a lot of us right here, right here on the lawn, that our mind is filled with just the thing, the influences of the world around us. We're watching news, we're reading the newspaper, we're scrolling on Twitter, and there are people and opinions and and voices that are trying to shape what you think and what you believe. And it it is in contrast to what Jesus is trying to do in your life. And it is disorienting when we try to follow what the world is shaping us and then we see something that Jesus is doing and we're not sure and what do we do and we too often try to make Jesus serve our own purposes. Now, Jesus gets this, this end of this passage, Jesus gets to what I think is the biggest point of disorientation. This is the one choice that we all make that has a domino effect on every other choice. So this is kind of the heart of what we need to be thinking about and doing. So many of our struggles are about this thing. And, and Jesus often did this thing. If you read the Gospels, he often did this thing where he kind of like shook the tree a little bit and he found out who's really serious about discipleship. And so he would say something that was like kind of intentionally controversial or even cryptic. Like, are you serious about following me or are you just here for the snacks? I mean, is this real? Are you legit? And I think what he's about to say is one of those things that's kind of, kind of separate the, uh, the real disciples from the people who are just like, I don't know. It seems like it's kind of interesting. There's a crowd. I just followed it. I don't know. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. We absolutely know this verse, but I'm not sure we have ears to hear. I want you to hear what he said. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, do you hear this? Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's not a good idea. It's not a best practice. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I'm generalizing a little bit. This is my, you know, lack of expertise in this area. But I feel like anytime you hear a bit of pop psychology, um, maybe it's on a podcast or an inspirational movie, a movie, But it seems like the message is almost always some variation about the path to self-fulfillment. Like, if you're really going to be fulfilled as a human being in the 21st century, then what you need to do, it's some, some different way of saying, well, be true to yourself. Pursue yourself. Live your truth. Follow your heart. That's what it feels like a lot of what is being told us. Like, be true. You know, you speak your truth. And I think we've accepted this idea as gospel For about the last 50 years, it seems like it started to become more prevalent, more widely accepted back in the late 60s. Be true to yourself. You you do you. The heart wants what the heart wants. That seems to be just the prevailing uh, atmosphere of happiness and fulfillment in our culture right now. How's that going for us as a society? 
How's that working? Are, are, are people generally more fulfilled and happy when they pursue themselves? I don't, I don't see it. Are people generally doing better because that they have lived their own truth at the cost of actual truth? I don't see it. I, I don't see that people are doing a lot better with that kind of in the, in, in, in the cultural ether. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, to our culture, what does that sound like? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Here's that disorientation I was talking about, because I think there are maybe some people here, but certainly some people, if they were just wandering off the street and they're listening to me, or if the neighbors can hear me, I think if people were to hear like, oh, I need to deny myself, that sounds wrong. That doesn't, Jesus said deny, no, that can't be what he meant. It can't be, there must be some other way to understand that, because he can't have actually meant to deny myself, because that's what's supposed to make me happy, is the pursuit of those things that make me happy. I don't deny those things, deny myself, that sounds wrong. It's the orthodoxy of our culture. And then when Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself, it sounds completely incorrect. If, listen, if the highest truth is some variation on follow your heart or pursue your truth or whatever that is, then when Jesus says, deny yourself, that sounds like oppression. I don't know that I want to follow a Jesus that says, deny myself. Well, then you're going to end up following a Jesus of your own creation. There's a uh, ton of construction on my usual route to the church building. So I've got, I've got an eight-minute commute. It's real tough, an eight-minute commute. And uh, it, for, I don't know, 10 years, it's been taking me down this one route, and they decided to put a roundabout in. And so three or four days in a row, I went down the road and then got to the very end of it. And, of course, it was a dead end, and I had to turn around, and I had to add an extra three-minute horror of horror uh, detour onto my normal route. Well, about the fourth time I did this, I thought, you know what? I'm from, I live in Woodbury. I bet you I can figure out a back way. Even though I had gone down the road where it was going to be road closed, I'm sure there's some, I can turn off into this residential area and I can navigate a back way back to where I want to get. Maybe it'll take me an extra minute or two, but I know I can do it. I'm smart enough to figure this out. So I decided rather than turning around and going back out of my way, I decided I'm just going to navigate through the residential area. I got three or four blocks into, into uh, the neighborhood, and some homeowner had taken a piece of plywood, and on the piece of plywood, he had graffitied with spray paint this big sign and leaned it, uh, leaned it up against a light pole, and he said, there is no way out. Well, I thought, you know what? I'm pretty clever. I don't know. I bet you this homeowner is just annoyed that smart people like me have found this this shortcut, and he just is annoyed that there's all this extra traffic on his road. No way out. Don't give me that no way out. And so I just blew right past that sign. And so I'm going down the road. I'm like, I guarantee you, if I have to drive across somebody's lawn, I'm going to find a way through here, and there's nothing, there's nothing. And the road turned right, and then it turned right again, and then it turned right again. And I was back to that sign that said there was no way out. And this homeowner, this is true, this homeowner had graffitied on the back of the sign as well. And he had graffitied on the back of the sign two words, told you. And I thought, this is unbelievable. 
Not only did this guy know that people were going to try to navigate through the neighborhood and he was going to warn them that was, there was no way out, he knew that people, enterprising young men such as myself, were also going to determine, I'm not going to listen to that sign and I'm going to try to figure it out anyway. So he was going to write on the back of the sign. This guy must have been a psychologist for sure. Like, I mean, how well does he know? Are humans so predictable that we're just going to blow past the warnings and try to figure out our own way? This is so important. God knows what you need in life to be a, a human being that has a full life full of meaning and purpose and value. God knows that. God knows that. So when Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself, he's not saying, hey, uh, you're just going to have to give up your own pursuits for a while. He is offering you the path to life. In fact, doesn't he say that in the very next verse? In the very next verse, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Oh, how wonderful is that truth? I mean, we have, our philosophy is, is to, it, we wouldn't say this, but it's to, it's to follow self, pursue your heart, whatever, and by implication, Jesus is saying, well, that means to deny me, at least for who I really am. And that means you will lose your life. That, these are the two options we have. We can pursue self, deny Jesus, and lose our life. Or Jesus says, you can deny self, follow me, and find life. Those, those are the only two options. Are we going to look at the sign where Jesus has spray-painted the warning and we're eventually going to come to that truth anyway. At some point in our life or death, we will come to the realization that Jesus was right all along. And the choice is whether or not we trust him now as all authority, as King Jesus, or later. That's, that's really the only decision. Are we going to do it now or are we going to do it later? It, does Jesus truly have all authority in our lives? Do we have ears to hear? Are we following King Jesus or are we following a Jesus of our own making? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for a few moments to reflect. Lord, I know there is a lot going on in our lives. Our world, there is a lot going on. There is a lot vying for our attention. There is a lot to cause fear. There is a lot to cause hopelessness. There is a lot to cause angst and worry. But God, I pray that we as disciples, we would firmly believe that you have all authority and that we would bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven by bowing our knee to your authority. Lord, I pray that you would give each person here clarity to see how we need to deny ourselves to follow you, to take up our cross and to find life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll talk to you next week.